All right, let's turn our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. I'll begin reading with verse 1. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, but just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God." Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked Him? When they had heard, indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. Our one living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, glory be unto you, the one true living God in three persons. There is none greater, none purer, none more glorious than you, our Lord. Our God and our Father, we come before you and ask your mercies upon us that your Spirit would work illuminating truth to our minds, that we would see the wonders and the graciousness of your word. We praise you for sending and giving your word to us, that we may understand the truths of your good news through your Son, the Lord Jesus, whom you sent graciously 
Glory be unto the Son that He is obedient in all ways. For there is none like Him in His person. Glory be unto the Spirit for the working in the hearts of men and women and children throughout all the ages. Give us this day that we glory in You, that we rest in You, that we have our joy renewed in You and the salvation which You have given through Your Son. May we think upon what You have done and give us focus and eyes to see the world around us according to Your truth and not according to our remaining flesh or the world as it crashes in on us. We praise You and give thanks to You for a time together this morning to study Your Word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning I want us to see a, a move and transition in the letter to these Hebrews. There has been uh, previously in, in the two chapters a, uh, a real serious and definite work to show or reveal who the Christ is and His person and work. That's been the, the real main focus of the letter. Now from its opening, there's a call to these Hebrews he's writing to, and yet he's going to, in these first chapters, give this grand explanation of why I'm writing to you and who I'm writing to you about. But in chapter 3, we begin to see a transition from almost what is a polemic uh, argument, and I don't mean argument as though he's going back and forth, but he's putting together this polemic argument to state the case of who the Christ is to now, in chapter 3, we're going to see a gracious call. So this morning, uh, number one, rec recognize the gracious call to the brethren. Recognize the gracious call to the brethren. He says in verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of heavenly calling, Consider Jesus. All right, also notice in verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now he's using this term, brethren, as a real sense of calling unto those he's writing to. Um, I think it's pretty interesting here that he's made a very polemical case for the person and work of Christ in these first two chapters. And I mean, he's gone at it pretty hard. Uh, from Old Testament Scripture, uh, from reasoning through and, and rational, uh, log logician-like uh, context in his mind and reasoning through that, uh, God's grace working in him, he's made this great case for who Christ is as the Son of God and the Son of Man. And now he turns and makes this gracious call to the brethren. Those of you who are reading, I call out to you. Um, it's interesting to me that sometimes, and, and just, just by way of thinking through this, um, we, we have a tendency, and, and it's especially prevalent in our day uh, through the Internet, 
to where when we want to make a case for something, we make our case for it and then we turn around and attack everybody, even those who might be our, our, our brothers and our sisters. Um, I think we need to be really careful with how we handle one another in Christ. And I think we see the example of that here from the Hebrews writer. He's making an appeal, calling them brethren. Now, he's not any less serious than he was before. He's very concerned about the direction they're going. He's very concerned about the direction they might go. But he's making a gracious call to them. I'm often amazed sometimes when I uh, glimpse. I'm, I'm not a Twitter person. I think the name of it's changed now. But um, I'm not really a Twitter person. But occasionally I'll see some things that people post or whatever. And the way fellow Christians go after each other. I've even noticed that in the Reformed community, especially the Reformed Baptist community lately. There are Reformed Baptists who have known each other a long time, and you, you would think that it's, it's a crocodile and a jaguar going after each other. I mean, the fangs are out. And if you don't agree with one of them exactly down the line, then, buddy, they're going to cut your throat. Well, the Hebrews writer says, no, that's not the way to handle this. No. You make an appeal. It's serious. Your concern is serious. Your concern about the issue is serious. But you make an appeal to your brothers, and you do it in a way that you remind them, I'm calling upon you as my brothers. The Hebrews writer is no less concerned at this point about what's taking place, but he's coming to them in a different way than attacking them as though they're the Pharisees. Now, in dealing with a the Pharisee, there might, we look at the way Jesus dealt with the Pharisees, there might be a, a different context. There might be some different language that we use. But if a person is my brother in Christ, I'm not going to treat them like a Pharisee. So beware as you're out there on the internet. I don't know what all's out there because I'm not on it all the time. Um, but things that people have shown me, things that I've seen myself, it gets rabid. And if it starts getting rabid, you need to bow out. Well, that may be true too. That's one of the reasons I don't... I learned early on when Facebook came out, I made a few comments and then I realized, you know what, I can't do that. Because those people can't see my face. And I made a few comments and somebody thought I was attacking them. I was done then. Oop, I'm out. Because you can't see people's faces and they automatically think, I, I just don't post all that. Why? Because they can't see my face. They don't know what, I'm, what my face looks like. At least if I have an opportunity to talk to somebody face to face, they can see face to face. I'm not angry. I'm concerned, but I'm not angry. With comments, they can't do that. Somebody else wanted to... Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, it's why we can't really have conversations about 
politics now. Because the minute you say something that seems like it's on one side, the other person is either going to attack you as though you need to be stabbed to death 400 times or they're just going to walk away and not listen. It's gotten to a sad place. There's no nuance anymore. We've had discussions about that as elders. There's no nuance in politics anymore. You can't have any nuance discussion. It's so black and white. And it, it just has become so rabid. And quite frankly, I think Scott's right. We see some of that. It, the church is being influenced by the world, even in that place. And as the church, we shouldn't be treating each other that way. As a church, we ought to... It, a, a local church. In a local church, we ought to be able to have discussions with one another and not be afraid to see each other face to face. And if we can't have discussions with one another because somebody might say something we don't agree with and then that just makes us mad, well, you're going to have a lot of trouble working with people. Local church is influenced, but even the greater church has been influenced by that to where now it's just all kind of, there's no coming together at all inside genuine, true evangelical Christianity. We can't even function. Yeah. Well, I think we need to do it, and especially in our local context. Um, I can't... I'm an elder here at this local church. My, my responsibility is with you all, and I'm thankful that you've allowed me to have that responsibility with Scott and with Robin. Um, so I, I want to encourage you all. Let, let's, let's do that here. Let's not go after each other like the world does. Now, I'm thankful, historically, we, I think we've had a history of being gracious with one another. And the Lord's been merciful to us. I just hope we stay that way and we don't act like the world and we don't take on all this other garbage out there. Um, but it's a good reminder that even textually, biblically here, the Hebrews writer, it, it, go back and read chapter 1 and 2. He's very serious about his concerns, right? This is no small deal. Who Christ is as the Son of God and who Christ is as the Son of Man, that's big time stuff. We're not, we're not talking, uh, you know, little bitty stuff here. This isn't peanuts. This is big stuff. And now he makes this appeal and says, hey, holy brethren. It's a pretty interesting term. He's referring to these brethren as those who are sanctified or who are being sanctified in technicality. He says, my, my brothers and my sisters, I'm making an appeal to you. Please listen. He doesn't come at them swords drawn. We'll see as we move along into the second part of this chapter that yes, he does make some pointed statements. 
But even when he makes those pointed statements, he starts verse 12 with, take care. Take care. There's, there's a, a genuine appeal there. So when you read this chapter, because we're going to get in, we're doing a little bit of an overview this morning, but as we get into this chapter and, and, and we see some of the nitty gritty of, of chapter 3 and chapter 4 and, and the appeal that's being made and the content of that appeal, when, when, it, when it comes to places that are pointed, recognize he's not coming with vitriol here. He's coming with care for a person as though that were, that's my brother and that's my sister. I'm concerned for them. All right, so that's the nature uh, of the appeal in its, in its opening. But now, as he begins to, to move along, in the, the first portion of the appeal, as he calls them partakers of a heavenly calling. Now, the partakers of a heavenly calling... This is going to be in contrast and comparison to the later portion of the chapter where he talks about, look at the end of verse 19. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. The holy brethren who are partakers of a heavenly calling versus those who are in unbelief. And he's making a very clear distinction here. And that's going to be important for us as we move along in this letter in the next couple of chapters to realize the Hebrews writers making a clear distinction. There are those who are in Christ called according to a heavenly calling and there are those who are not in Christ and they are in unbelief. So when you hear or hear people talk about the Hebrews letter or maybe read people talk about the Hebrews letter and they start getting kind of muddy in their, their wording or their thinking and saying, well, there, there's, you can actually be around the things of God and be a partaker of the heavenly calling, uh, but you can lose that salvation. Because there's lots of people that start talking about the ability to lose your salvation and they use this chapter. They use chapter 4 and they use chapter 6. To start talking about losing your salvation. Well, chapter 3 tells us whatever we're going to see in chapter 4 and whatever we're going to see in chapter 6, chapter 3 tells us he's not talking about losing your salvation. He's talking about you're either in Christ or you're not. It's a matter of belief versus unbelief. And those who have not believed, they are not partakers. So, See that distinction from the very beginning because partakers of a heavenly calling, when he uses that word partaker there, he's saying you've taken it in. And it's in you. See? So he says, hey, I want to call you back, partakers. The heavenly calling. Jews have had a heavenly calling. Fair enough. That's from the past. And the past in a covenant worked out through time. But don't go back to that. He says, be partakers of the heavenly calling. Consider Jesus. You've already heard of Him. You've been taught about Him. He's been spoken to you plainly. Don't go backwards. 
This gracious call is for them to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest. And notice what he says of our confession. See how he's appealing to them? The language he's appealing to them? He's giving real consideration to how he appeals to his brothers and sisters. And he's using the content of the Lord Jesus to make that appeal. The apostle and high priest of our confession. Apostle, leader, teacher, high priest, mediator. He's the substitutionary atonement. Now he's going to unfold that as the letter goes along even further about the substitutionary atonement. We've already dealt with it a little bit in uh, portions of chapter 2, right? When we saw the humanity of Christ and the need for the atonement. But he's going to continue to unfold that. He's going to contrast and compare in that unfolding of it. Here's what the sacrificial system looked like in the atonement and what was the purpose and the reason behind it. And now look at the better ministry of Christ. But here he's making this broad introductory statement to say, hey, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. One last thing here in in the appeal. Notice how he doesn't want to be at odds with his brothers. I've just noticed over the years, and this comes from my my time in serving Southern Baptist churches and and being even in Reformed Baptist context. Um, This month... 30, 32 years this month I've been serving churches. And I've just noticed in serving churches, and I'm sure you can see this in, in the world that you've worked in, but there's some people who always are looking for some kind of argument or battle or fight. And, and, and over the years, I've seen that in myself, that I've always, there's this thing in me at times that wants to look for that place to battle or fight. And I've asked the Lord to be gracious to me and, and, and that I not be, become this contentious man who always wants to fight with everybody. But I see that in Christianity. I see there are people that even though they've grown older, and I've, I've seen it over the years in churches, there are some people, even in their 50s and 60s and 70s, they just want to fight with everybody. It's always a fight. And here, this appeal is not like that. He's not looking for a fight. He's looking for these people to think. And I think that's the way we need to consider our work as we go out into the world is that we're not always looking for a fight. We're hoping to make things evident to people that they will think, but we're not always looking for a fight. I don't always want to box with everybody right in front of me. And by God's grace, He's worked on me, and I really don't. I'd really rather not have a fight now. I, I, I don't know when it was, but some years ago now, I got tired of all that. I'm tired of fighting. I want to be about the truth. I want to be about being gracious in the truth. I want to reach people 
in the context of the truth. But man, if I have to box with everybody in front of me, because it's not of Christ, it'll wear you out. And if you become that person in discipling someone else, or you become that person in leading your home, if you're that kind of person as a mom or a dad or as a husband or a wife, everything's always a fight. Go back to the appeal here of the Hebrews writer and see what he says. If your husband or your wife has made a profession of faith and you may not see all the evidence you think you need to see, but appeal to them as though they're a person who's made confession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Work with that person. Now there may come time where it's ultimately understandable that that's not who they are and other things have to happen. But make the appeal. Family members, the same way. In the body of Christ, we need to work with each other the same way. See the nature of his appeal here. Now we want to deal a little bit with the content. The content here is based on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostle, that one who is the shepherd as apostle. He is the teacher. That's, uh, that's the idea of an apostle is one who is not only a shepherd but a teacher. We see Christ in his ministry. He taught uh, plainly, carefully, and thoughtfully. Uh, he led his disciples. Uh, he preached not only to his disciples, but there was a time when he was preaching to that Jewish world. And then we see him as high priest, uh, and he's the high priest of our confession. And now he's going to con con compare and contrast that with Moses. So recognize the comparison and the contrast with Moses. Recognize the comparison and the contrast with Moses. First of all, note that he appeals to Moses as one who is faithful. He appeals to Moses as one who is faithful. Now this, this is interesting as you, you, you recognize what's taking place here. Um, the thing that the Hebrews writer has in common with those who he's making this appeal to is that there's a recognition that Moses was used of God. Moses was used of God. Now, can someone take Moses and put him in a place that he doesn't deserve to be in? Could they make Moses an idol? This means yes. Okay. Do we see that in other times and places in church history? Where an individual is raised to a level of idolatry that should not be due him or her. All right, Mary in the Roman Catholic Church, we see it today. Ideals can be done that way. Individuals can be done that way. Political figures can be done that way. Religious leaders can be done that way in our day. Um, all kind of things. But, but notice what he says here. He's not pointing to Moses in the context of trying to raise him to a level of idolatry, he's putting Moses in his proper context. He says, speaking of Jesus, 
Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. Okay, so now here's the opening of the illustration. The opening of the illustration is a house. All right? And so he's going to give this comparison and contrast between two houses. One is the house of Moses and one is the house of Jesus. And he says, let's compare the two. But notice in the comparison of the two, he doesn't throw Moses out completely. He doesn't say to him, don't ever remember Moses. Let's just throw Moses out of the whole Bible. Well, no, we can't do that. And that's what's interesting about the Hebrews writer using this comparison and contrast and the modern idea of some uh, religious leaders of wanting to lead us away from the Old Testament altogether. Yet the very foundations of what we believe in the gospel are built upon the Old Testament. And the Hebrews writer is making that clear in proper context. He's saying, remember Moses, but remember him properly. As a servant. And he's going to get there with that language. He comes here and he says, speaking of Jesus, he was faithful to him who appointed him. Who is it that appointed Jesus? Who is it that appointed Moses? Okay. Both are appointed by God the Father. So he makes this declaration that Jesus was faithful to the Lord Jesus who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. Verse 3, For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Now, here's another point of comparison and contrast between Moses and the Lord Jesus. Both were appointed by God. But was Moses' purpose the same purpose as the Lord Jesus exactly? No. Why was Moses' purpose different? He was to serve in the house God was building. He was more the builder of that house. Okay. So he was to serve in the house, but he was not the builder of the house. All right, his was a temporal service. Okay, and I think we need to see the comparison and the contrast here of what Moses did. Moses, in comparison to the Lord Jesus, had a temporal service. Now, why was Moses' service, why was it temporal? All right, he was just a man, he lived in time. Now, the Lord Jesus lived in time. But there's, there's been a distinction made earlier between the Lord Jesus and who He is as the Son of God. The Hebrews writer has already appointed eternality to Him. Okay? But Moses didn't have that eternality. He was temporal in the context of His service because He was actually going to have a time where He could serve and there would be a time of His death. It also gives us a sense of understanding that with Moses' temporal service as a man, the service appointed to him exemplified something that was temporal as well. Would the people of Israel 
that Moses led out of Egypt, out of their dire, dire situation in, in Egypt, would his leadership of them into the wilderness and then subsequently after his death them being led into the promised land, would that be a work that was to be sustained eternally just as it was in that moment? No. No. What was the work of Moses? It was a faithful work. It was a temporal work. But it was also a what? A typical work. We got, got our two words there. It was temporal and it was typical. Now what do I mean by typical? Okay. Alright, it was a type of something to come. It was a foreshadowing of something to come. And so in this contrast and comparison, he's saying, look, for exactly what Moses was intended to do, he was faithful in the context. All right? He led the people out of Israel. He led them through some very difficult situations. I mean, think about it. I, I, know, I know we get to the moment of Moses at the rock and, 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 and we know what happened there. But before we get to Moses at the rock and the anger at the rock and the smashing the, the staff against the rock, before we get there, think of all the years prior to that. Moses was pretty faithful, even though he struggled, he was pretty faithful to go and, and to go before Pharaoh, right? W wouldn't you all have been a little nervous? Even the most... Uh, confident person in the room, wouldn't you have been a little nervous to have been brought before the king of Egypt? All right. And he had to go before him multiple times, multiple times with the word of God brought to him. And often that word of God was brought in what? Judgment. This shows you the idea of Moses as a prophet, right? And the necessity of Jesus to fulfill the role of prophet. Not just from uh, Elijah and Elisha and, and the major prophets and the minor prophets, but even from the very early portions of the time of, of the working in the house of Israel, Moses was a prophet. A prophet sent to speak the truth of God to the king of Egypt. Was he not faithful in that work? Was he not faithful in leading the people out of Egypt? I don't know about y'all, but when you go back and you read in Exodus, getting the people out of Egypt was no small feat. And then you turn around and you look behind you and who's coming? The Egyptian army, right? Moses obeyed God, led the people, even through the parting of the Red Sea. He believed that God would take care of His people. And in destroying the Egyptian army, God showed, I am faithful. Just like Abraham believed, Moses believed, and Moses believed in the house that he was used to build. 
It's interesting here, note how the Hebrews writer is not just tearing Moses apart as if Moses ought to be completely thrown out. He's making this appeal to them. Let's just put Moses in proper context. We're not saying throw him out. We're not saying treat him as though he was, uh, you know, a Roman Caesar and assassinate him and do away with him. No, 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 no. Just put him in proper context. And so the first appeal he makes out of his graciousness to these Hebrew listeners is, yes, I, I recognize the faithfulness of Moses, but who, who's the one that called Moses? God called him. Who was he faithful to? He was faithful to the ministry that God gave him. So all of this is in contrast and comparison to the house of Moses and the house of the Lord Jesus. And he's saying, now wait a second. Now let's put the Lord Jesus in his proper context. And he begins to build upon that. Verse 3. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. He's saying... Do, do you not recognize from the previous portion of my letter, he's very God of very God and very man of very man? Could it be said of Moses that Moses holds the glory of the Son? No. Moses does not hold the same glory as the Son. The Lord Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. He's saying, let's, let's put Moses in his proper place. Okay? He was one who was building in the context. He was in the house. But he ultimately was not the ultimate builder of the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Every person in the context of the world has their place in God's economy. God is using them and they're building whatever it is. You might think, well, I'm not building much. Well, yeah, you are. Whatever your sphere of life is, you're building. You really need to think of it that way. In the economy of God, whatever your sphere of life is, you're building. And you ought to be doing that wisely and thoughtfully. What are you doing? How are you mixing the cement? Are you just using glue for paper? Are you putting blocks down on cement that's going to last and stand? So it was of Moses. He says, but the builder of all things is God. The context here is the recognition that Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. And yet Christ was faithful as the son over his house. See that in verse 5 and 6? The contrast and the comparison. Both were servants. Both were over houses. The house of Moses, the faithfulness in that work, it was already done and fulfilled. 
What was Moses' purpose in building the house? Yes, the law was given. True enough, but the law had already been there before Moses. All right, he was a judge. But what was his ultimate purpose, which he didn't get to fulfill? To demonstrate God's covenant faithfulness to lead the people into the promised land. Yes, but, but yes, you're, you're moving 40 miles ahead. Get the, get the picture though. He's trying to stay with the context of who Moses is and saying, look at him. Because why, what do the Jewish people want to say? They want to see Moses because Moses has been taught to them all their lives, right? So if the Hebrews writer comes in and just says, throw Moses out, just look at Jesus. We don't want to talk about Moses. No, he's making the appeal that Moses was a type. Look at him for who he was and recognize, yes, he did do his work. He was a servant. But his work has been fulfilled. And his work was fulfilled in its type in the moment. Don't take Moses and project him into the far future when Moses is dead and he already did his work. Yeah. Yeah. That's saying, Move on. He's to else. Well, and he's wanting he's wanting to give it its proper context. So let, let's all do that in its sense and say, hey, you know what? What is Moses in, in Hebrews chapter eleven in the Hall of Faith? Right? Let's give him his proper due. Proper credit where he was, the purpose he served at the time. So he wants to say, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Moses is in the bathwater. You know, that's the context of who he is. And in the larger context of God's chosen people. Yes. The whole picture of But in the contrast now, he wants to show that the Lord Jesus is far greater than Moses. Don't throw Moses out. Put him in his proper context. But remember what he's already written about the Lord Jesus in chapter 1 and 2. And now he says, For Christ was faithful as a son. He doesn't call Moses the son, does he? He calls him a servant, but he doesn't call him the son. He says, let's see the covenant connections properly. I was building all the way. If God's the builder of the house, the Hebrews writer is saying, let's see the house. I, I want, we're going to close here because I don't, I don't have any more time. But I want you to see something. I want you to see the danger. And I don't, I don't use that word lightly. I, that's a good word. I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here. I want you to see the danger of not seeing these covenant connections and becoming someone who's New Testament only.
We have a real tendency in Christianity as a whole, and I think maybe historically, but certainly in the last couple of hundred years in American Christianity, 150 years, in American Christianity, there's this huge tendency to not see the covenant connections and just to look at it and just say, Jesus, 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 Jesus. True enough. Yes. Amen. I'm with you, brother. But the house was being built over a long period of time. God was doing a work far more immense and greater than what we could imagine. See those covenant connections that God could even use a man like Moses in the time. True enough. Was he perfect? No, but the scripture says he was a man of faith. He believed. When you see Moses rightly as a faithful servant of God, it makes you understand how much greater the Lord Jesus really is. Anybody can see Moses as the one who slammed the staff across the rock and go, well, I'm just like Moses. True enough. But see Moses in the fullness of the picture and the Hebrews writer is saying, hey, Moses was a called covenant man of God in a particular time and he is one that's considered faithful in his time foreshadowing the one to come. Now, look at Jesus in comparison to that. Is Jesus' faithfulness not far greater? Moses' faithfulness is pretty faithful. I don't know about y'all, but there are some times I look at my own life and say, you know what, I wish I had the faithfulness of Moses. But look at the faithfulness of Christ in comparison to that. See the covenant connections in the building of the house. Now we'll stop there this morning and I want to unfold that building of the house further because that's where he goes into verse 6. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you be merciful to our souls. We can never speak enough of your Son, Christ. Your glorious Son. And yet never let us forget that you were building this house all the way along. Foreshadowing the truth of his coming. So that his coming would be that which was fulfilled and worked out in prophecy. Never let us forget, Lord, there was never a time that you were not building this house. Never let us look at past history and think for one moment that in all of the world that you were not doing your work to build your house. Please don't let us lose sight of your covenant faithfulness through all of time, space, and history. And never let us lose sight of your eternal covenant faithfulness. We praise you for your Son, the Lord Jesus, perfect in every way, the only mediator between God and man, 
May we glory in him alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen.